I haven't uh, skied in years. One of the reasons I moved to Texas is so I wouldn't have to ski anymore. Some who've uh, watched me ski would say I never really have skied. That uh, my, my plan was to get on a slope I had no business being on and, and hurtle down the mountain screaming until I crash. Steve Winger gives me hope. He said that on a ski trip he, he saw a blind person skiing. That the uh, blind skier was wearing a bright pink vest and stayed directly behind an instructor. Very close to this instructor who, who was, and he was listening for directions on how to turn and when to turn and what to do. And only by staying very close and listening carefully could he make it down the mountain. Steve said, if he can do it, you can do it. I just need a, a big pink vest and an instructor with a lot of guts. That's what I need. Mark in his gospel, presents Jesus as the one to closely follow. And to follow Jesus, not simply to make life better, or to admire him from a distance, or as some moral guide only, but as the foundation of existence. Now, as we've begun studying this gospel of Mark, we've seen already how, because of his teaching and his miracles, People were mobbing Jesus, most of them because they wanted a miracle for themselves. Their, their interest in Jesus, their allegiance to Jesus was superficial. It was selfish. But some answered Jesus' call to follow him. They left everything and did follow him. And that word follow is one that is used only of disciples, only of those who truly have trusted in Jesus. It's a synonym for faith. And to believe then is to follow Jesus. And the question I would ask this morning, are you one of his followers? Are you one who is pursuing Jesus? If that's the case, here's some things that should be new in your life. As we continue our study of Mark's gospel, I want to point out four new realities when you are pursuing Jesus. Uh, as we look through this text, there are a number of things that we notice. That what will be true in your life? What will be new in your life if you are following Jesus, pursuing him? So as we work through these scenes from the middle of chapter 2 through chapter 3, notice these four new realities. The first new reality in pursuing Jesus is that you view people in a new way. You view people in a new way. Now, Jesus, by the way, has crowds. When we open up chapter 2, verse 13, crowds of people are following him. From, and Jesus is withdrawing from the city to the seashore, but the crowds chase him down. And he teaches them. As he's going along, crowded with people, verse 14, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now let me just remind you that when a Jewish man became a tax collector in the ancient world, he was considered an outcast, a, a disgrace to the family. 
He was not welcome in the synagogue. He, w- he was viewed as a traitor, as a collaborator. And let me say on record, I love those who are tax collectors. Just, they've always been some of my favorite people. But in that ancient world, this was a profession in which you could get rich quick. Because you're basically working for the Roman government, the oppressor of that people, and the way you got paid was to collect more than what was due to the government. The government didn't care just so long as they got what they believed was coming to them. And so tax collectors were not looked upon with favor. But Levi left it all immediately and followed Jesus. Now, Jesus had been teaching in that area for quite some time, and It seems obvious that when Levi had heard that message before, he likely assumed that this wasn't for somebody like him. But then suddenly there was Jesus right there inviting him to follow. And so Levi abandoned his lucrative career. He left behind the money that he paid in advance to the Roman government and followed Jesus. And how scandalous it was that Jesus would want someone like him And for the religious people who are watching, this was just all the proof that they needed, just more evidence that this Jesus was no good. Here's this carpenter. How could we believe anything he said was true when he he hangs out with such low lives as tax collectors? Verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So so Jesus goes to a dinner party with Levi's peer group because if if you're looked down upon in that way, who can you hang with? You hang with other people who are looked down like, uh, like you are. So other tax collectors were there. And sinners, it's in quotes. It refers to those who, whose lifestyle, it, it was obvious in common knowledge that these were not godly people. So their profession, what they did or didn't do, showed them to be unacceptable people. They were the outcasts of polite society, considered inferior by those who were religious. And these were the only kinds of people who would show up at this kind of party. What they shared in common was that no decent person wanted to be seen with them. A God-fearing Jew would not hang out with a money-grubbing tax collector or a prostitute or known criminals. And that... Jesus was there, got a reaction. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So the Pharisees, these religious leaders, couldn't figure this out. How could anyone who claimed to be good and who wanted to be holy, hang around with these characters. But this was exactly the kind of party that religious people should avoid, in their opinion, not go to. And the Pharisees couldn't see anything wrong with themselves, and and they couldn't see anything good about those who weren't like them. And it was their own self-righteousness that blinded them to their need and to the reality of other people. We must not forget that the gospel is not for good people. The good news of Jesus is not for those who think they have it all together, but for people who know how bad they really are. As the Bible clearly tells us, there's no one who's righteous, not even one. 
that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and people who don't think that they have a problem or who are convinced that they're good on their own, uh, that's not who Jesus came for. No one is truly saved who doesn't admit that they are dead in sin and lost apart from Christ. Now the Pharisees considered themselves spiritually healthy. Jesus came to minister to those who recognize they need him. And the good news of the gospel is not simply that God saves sinners, it's that God saves us while we are still sinners. And we must rid ourselves of this opportunity, of this outlook that we have to be all cleaned up before God will accept us. That, that, there, that we need to do something righteous and good for God to accept us. No, God demonstrated his love to us while we are still sinners. Christ died for us. And it's the, if there's any teaching out there that looks down on the poor, the needy, the sinful, the average, the suffering, that's false. The, the self-satisfied, the self-sufficient, the, the proud are the ones farthest from salvation. The follower of Christ looks at the homeless with care rather than annoyance. Looks at the poor with compassion rather than pity. Uh, the, the refugee with concern rather than distrust. The damaged and the broken with sympathy rather than disgust. For those who are pursuing Jesus, they see people in a whole new way. And they treat others better and differently because of that. Because we are all sinners in need of a Savior. None of us deserves the grace of God. So we need to stop viewing people from a political lens, which is so prevalent in our society, and look through it with the eyes of Jesus. Because to follow Jesus changes how we view people. A second new reality is that you approach life in a new way. Life is different when you're following Jesus. See, it, Jesus got criticism because his followers weren't fasting. And he got criticism from the Pharisees, the religious elite, because they normally fasted every Monday and every Thursday from dawn till dusk. They went without food for religious purposes. That was a common practice. That's what spiritually serious people did. So they were critical that Jesus, his followers, didn't fast at all. And Jesus answered their criticism this way, verse 19. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. So the example Jesus gives is of a wedding celebration, which in that day was a party lasting for seven days. As a father of two daughters, I'm glad we don't do it that way. If it was a remarriage, the party was only three days long, but still, there was food and wine and singing and dancing, and no real guest would think of fasting during that time of joy. You're invited to that party, you're not going to fast. It would be rude, it would be ridiculous, it would be like being invited to a friend's house for Thanksgiving, and you get there, sit down at the table, say, no, I don't feel like eating. It's, it's rude, it's ridiculous. And Jesus said, if you really knew who I am, there, there would be a party. God is here with you. That's why uh, my, my disciples are not fasting. And, and these religious leaders were so busy doing religious stuff that they missed God. That's one of my great fears in my life as a pastor. You get so busy re doing religious stuff that you miss the one to whom it all points. And often the first people to get upset when you follow Jesus are religious for that very reason. 
Uh, Jesus answers with, with this parable, verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pour, pours new wine into new wineskins. So Jesus is saying what's new is incompatible with the old. Combining them is destructive. In effect, Jesus is not a patch of fabric on our lives. He's not, not a patch on the fabric of our lives. We can't just add the new to the old or the tear becomes worse than before. We can't add Jesus to our old values and habits and perspectives. He's not just an adjustment to our schedule. New wine must have a new bottle, flexible for expansion. If not, it will explode. The newness of Christ can't be contained by old forms. And to use Jesus that way makes things worse than they were before. It's all or nothing. Adding Jesus to your already packed life brings disaster. To follow Christ means to stop business as usual and join the party. We don't just live a little better. We don't do things a little different. We, we don't feel a little happier, stand a little taller, work a little harder. To follow Jesus means a whole new way of life. A hundred years ago, Len Sullivan's grandparents got married and they moved into uh, Len's family homestead that had been in the family for generations and it was a dilapidated old clapboard house after a few years Len decided that they would tear it down and they would build a new house that they would live in for the rest of their lives and Len said to my grandmother's dismay many of the materials of the old house were reused in the building of the new house they used the old facings and doors and, and many, many other pieces of the finishing lumber. And so everywhere my grandmother looked, she saw that old house, old doors that wouldn't shut properly, crown molding that was split and riddled with nail holes, unfinished window trimming, and it was a source of grief to her. All her life she longed for a new house. i tell you that pursuing Jesus means discarding the old way of life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So pursuing Jesus changes everything. He's not just a patch. Notice this third reality. That's not it. All right, this third reality is that you please God in a new way. You please God in a new way. So uh, when uh, we get to chapter uh, 2, verse 23, you have Jesus walking through a grain field, and his disciples pluck some grain as they walk. Now, the, the religious leaders got upset with this. Why, why would they get upset that the disciples are, are eating grain? It's because it was the Sabbath. And the religious leaders said this was unlawful. Now let me remind you why they felt that way. They felt that way because the Sabbath was part of the created order. Uh, God rested on the seventh day. 
And and, uh, God has made it so that we need this rhythm of work and rest. And God built that into Jewish life through regulation in the Old Testament. But the, uh, the rabbis added a bunch of their own rules to God's rules about working on the Sabbath. And, and so they made decisions on what would be considered work and what must be avoided. So now their, their, their rules would think there would be things that you would expect, like there should be no plowing, no uh, cooking on the Sabbath. But there were other things that you wouldn't expect, perhaps. For, for instance, you could not tie or untie a knot on the Sabbath. You couldn't sew more than one stitch. Why would anybody want to sew one stitch? I don't know. But you couldn't do more than one. You, you could not carry your child on the Sabbath. You could not fix a dislocated bone on the Sabbath. That sounds harsh to me. You could not repair a fallen roof. You could not walk more than 1,999 paces on the Sabbath. And so all these rules surrounding this way in which to honor God, uh, so that when they saw the disciples plucking a handful of grain, that was seen as work in a violation of the law. And, And to that criticism, Jesus says this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So Jesus telling these leaders that their rules are too strict and how they interpret God's law is far too narrow. The Sabbath was something God created for their own good, uh, for their spiritual refreshment, not to put us in a straitjacket, not to be burdened by laws and restrictions. And the one who is Lord over all is Lord over the Sabbath as well. He has authority to tell us how to live. Now the very next scene makes the same point as we move into chapter 3. Jesus goes into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand is there And uh, the people who want to trap Jesus watch him closely to see, is he going to do anything about this man with the shriveled hand and it's the Sabbath day? Because he shouldn't do that. Jesus didn't disappoint them. He tells the man to stand up. And verse 4, he said to them, or asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Their rules were getting in the way of accomplishing what God wanted, what was good for his people. I I was, uh, a meeting I had with several other local pastors some years ago, and the the host pastor uh, was late in arriving. We're all waiting for him, and when he showed up, he was kind of doubled over, and he, he was just very his color was very strange and he said I I don't know what's wrong I don't feel well and uh, we said well maybe you should go home we can cancel the meeting and 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 he suddenly it just got worse and he doubled over in pain and I said I I'm going to take you to the hospital right now and he said okay now when two guys talk about going to the hospital and one of them agrees you know something's bad okay something was really bad so uh I get him in my car. We're about five uh, miles or so from the hospital. And uh, we're driving along, and I keep looking at him to see, and he's doubled over in pain. I think he's probably got a kidney stone, or maybe it's something way worse than I don't know. But while I'm getting him to the hospital, and all of a sudden, I drive by the entrance into the hospital. And he looks up, and he sees that, and he just cries out, You've gone too far! So what I did was I 
immediately cut across two lanes of traffic, did a U-turn right where it said, don't do a U-turn, and broke the speed limit to go back into the hospital. Now, why? I don't generally break those kinds of laws, not even in Houston. I don't, don't drive that way. But there was something more important at stake. Here was a guy in pain that I needed to get to the hospital. It did turn out it was a kidney stone, and he was fine uh, after a few days. Um, that's how rules can get in the way of what's more important. They can prevent good from being done. That's Jesus' point to these religious leaders. Their hearts were not set on pleasing God. Their hearts were set on their own regulations. And Jesus is very seldom shown to be angry, but here he's mad. And he's mad because they don't get it. They had separated religion from human need. They felt that pleasing God was all about keeping a list of rules and had nothing to do with the heart. And Jesus was so much teaching that it is a, is a heart attitude, not rules. See, if you're following Jesus, you realize that there's a whole other way to please God. Not through the dead letter of the law, but through faith in Christ. That's Romans 7, 6. Your sin was nailed to the cross along with the regulations of the written code. And that's why Colossians 2 is so beautiful, which says, Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. What is that telling us? All those things, these, these uh, man-made things, these acts of religion, uh, they're a shadow of what, was the, what is the reality. And the reality is Jesus. When we follow Jesus, he becomes our objective. Dietary rules and Sabbath regulations will not please God. Pursuing Christ does. Serve the Lord of the Sabbath. Through Jesus, we please God in a whole new way. Not by trying to earn or deserve his love, but by receiving what he has done for us by grace through faith. Fourth new reality is that you relate to Jesus in a new way. You relate to Jesus in a new way. Um, Four different scenes here that show the wrong way to try and relate, to connect to Jesus. Um, by the way, I've, I've, 10 years, I think, before my wife and I got married, I knew her family. I knew her family for 10 years before then. We were, we were kids. And I always called her parents Mr. and Mrs. Bowman. Mr. and Mrs. Bowman. I started dating their daughter. I called them Mr. and Mrs. Bowman. And then after six months of dating... Uh, One night I got them off to the side and I asked Mr. and Mrs. Bowman if I could marry their youngest daughter. Her mother managed to contain her excitement visibly. But they said yes. And and so then we we got engaged. And during that time of engagement, I don't think I called them anything. And then uh, we got married and, and, and over the course of time, I stopped calling them Mr. and Mrs. Bowman and I started calling them mom and dad. So a whole new relationship had formed. Now, I was part of the family. Very different. Well, what is it that connects us to Jesus? These scenes challenge 
wrong ideas about how we relate to Jesus. Let me just go through each of them. The first scene, verses 12, 7 to 12, we have crowds coming from all over. They're chasing Jesus. They come from Tyre and Sidon, which is 50 miles away. They come from Idumea, which is 120 miles away. Uh, Their enthusiasm for Jesus is crushing. Everybody wants a piece of him. They're grabbing at him. They've come for a miracle. And, And when Jesus graciously heals some of these people, everyone tries to touch him, hoping for a miracle for themselves. And they're not pursuing him as master. They're pursuing him as magician. Can you imagine the grabbing, the crushing, the pushing, the demanding voices? And in the middle of this chaos, listen to what what happens, verse 11. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! So Satan is trying to hinder Jesus through demon-possessed people. And whenever Jesus got near, these demon-possessed people dropped screaming out his identity. Please notice, demons know who Jesus is. They recognize his authority. But of course, they don't obey. They know, but they don't follow. The second scene starts in verse 13. And we have this list of apostles. From, from all those who followed, there were 12 who were selected to be with Jesus constantly. They lived with him. They traveled with him. They ate with him. The Son of God. What an opportunity. What an amazing thing to think about being with Jesus constantly in that way. And what a crew it was. There wasn't a teacher or a recognized leader in the bunch. There were fishermen and government employees and political radicals. This is not a group that's going to get your hopes up. But how would you live if you could be with Jesus every day? If you could walk where he did, eat at his table, share stories around the fire, watch his miracles. These 12 did, even Judas, who betrayed him. Third scene is scribes. You have this crowd constantly surrounding Jesus so much that he and his disciples can't get anything to eat. Verse 21, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said he's out of his mind. Do you realize that Jesus' family came thought he was crazy? They wanted him locked up. They wanted him put away. His, there's something wrong with him, clearly. His own family believes the strain has pushed him over the edge. They want him in custody. His family loves him. They want to care for him, but they don't get it. And, and this gives ammunition to his enemies. His family worries that Jesus is deluded. His opponents claim he's demonic. And so verse 22, the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem, said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. The teachers of the law, the scribes, grammatus is the Greek word, they're the legal experts. They know the religious law inside and out. And, and these teachers saw Jesus' miracles. They heard his preaching, but they refused to accept him. And they charged him with being possessed by the prince of demons. That's Beelzebub, lord of the flies. And they claimed that Jesus can only do these miracles because he's working for Satan. So Jesus makes it clear that that's ridiculous and he warns of the great danger of attributing something that God does as something Satan does. And as well educated as these scribes were, they just didn't get it. The, The last scene starts in verse 31 and here we have Jesus still surrounded by the crowd when word comes to him, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside. There's a crowd of people around, but mom and my brothers are outside. Surely they're going to have priority, right? Surely you're going to let them pass through and get close to me. Now, now remember, why are they there? They're there because they think Jesus is out of his mind. His brothers didn't believe in him. Now, what I want you to notice is that in these four scenes, nobody gets it. Nobody gets it. See, 
following Jesus, this shows us how not to be related to Jesus. It's not giving the right answers. The demons had those. Just because you have factual information about Jesus and you can define the good news does not make you his follower. It's not proximity. The 12 were as close to Jesus as you could humanly get and still Peter denied he ever knew Jesus and Judas betrayed him for money. It's not religious heritage. The scribes knew more than anybody. They could quote God's word, but they didn't obey it. It's not even genetics. Because no one had a better claim to family than Mary and her other sons. But none of these can guarantee you a relationship with Jesus. No, only, oh, notice how Jesus talks about this. When, he said, when they say, hey, your mother and brothers are outside, Jesus says this, verse 35, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. That is a very important statement. Who's related to me closest? It's not the people with the answers. It's, it's not the people who have this heritage or connected to me. No, it's those who do God's will. Now, here's what God's will is. Well, let me define it for you, relationship to Jesus. Here it is. Jesus said, verse uh, John 6:40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. What's God's will? It's to put your faith and trust in Jesus and receive what you cannot earn or deserve yourself, to receive the gift of God, which is salvation through Christ. David Prince writes about this older child, a girl who was adopted by a family here in the U.S. from an unspeakably horrific orphanage in another country. And when the family brought this girl home, they, they, made, they laid out some expectations that they had for her, and one of those was to clean her room every day. And they didn't understand it at first, but the girl fixated on that rule, on that expectation. She saw that cleaning of her room as the way that she could earn her family's love. And so every morning when her, her parents came to her room, it was immaculate. And she would say this, my room is clean. Can I stay? Do you still love me? And her words broke her new parents' heart. And it took some time until this girl finally understood her parents' unconditional love and she didn't need to earn her place in the family. I want to tell you today that Jesus is the guarantee of the Father's love. Cling to him. There is no other way. To understand who Jesus is and leave your attempts to earn God's love behind is the key to life. He changes everything. See, when you follow Christ, all things are new. Hebrews 10.20 says that by his blood, Jesus has opened up a new and living way to God. It is his sacrificial death that made it possible for sinners like me to approach a holy God and, 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 and do so with confidence. And because of Jesus, I'm adopted into God's family as his own son. He has made me new. And hearing that should never get old. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And that shows in how you view people. Uh, that shows in, in how you, uh, how you uh, please God and how you live your life every day and how you relate to Jesus. He is everything. And we're going to close with a song about Jesus and God's love to us. And, and I want you to think about this. A, a, a few years ago, something unusual happened at the NCAA Cross Country Championship in Riverside, California. It's a 10,000-meter race. And somewhere along the route, the, the front runner missed a turn. And Mike Del Cavo was, was right behind him and saw that this guy took the wrong route. So he called him, come, come back, come back. Wasn't listening. Uh, 
Mike tried to warn everyone who was following him, no, we're going the wrong way. He tried to wave them to follow. But out of all the field, only four runners followed Mike, and the rest just laughed. 123 runners kept going the wrong way. Christianity is not simply thoughts and beliefs about Jesus. It is the active pursuit of Jesus. The one who says he is the only way to the Father, the truth, and the life. That is who Jesus is. And when you put your trust in him, all things are new. Leave your old way behind and follow him. Because the reality is, we're all skiing blind. And there is only one who is the way. And his name is Jesus.